Harvey Cushing was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and his parents were Elizabeth Maria Betsy Williams and Henry Kirky Cushing. Henry Cushing was a physician, and when he was a child, he attended the Cleveland Manual Training School, and he expanded his interests on science and medicine. And the school had an emphasis on experimental training and a physics-focused approach to education, and that played an important role in influencing Cushing towards a career in medical surgery. And the school's manual dexterity training program contributed to Cushing's success as a surgeon. He graduated with a degree from Yale in 1891. He studied medicine at Harvard Medical School, got his medical degree in 1895. And then he did his internship at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And he did a residency in surgery under the guidance of William Stewart Halsted at the John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Dr. Cushing, at the beginning of the 21st, the 20th century, developed many of the basic surgeries for operating on the brain. And this established him as one of the foremost leaders and experts in that field. And under Cushing's influence, neurosurgery became a new and autonomous surgical discipline. In some of his achievements, he improved the survival rate of patients after brain operations for tumors. He used x-rays to diagnose brain tumors. He played a role in developing the bovine electricity tool with William Bovine, a physicist. And he was considered the world's leading teacher of neurosurgeon in the first decades of the 20th century. Now, to open up someone's skull and to begin operating on a brain was different. It was new at one time. People didn't do it. People were afraid of doing it. People were scared of doing it. But someone had to do it. Someone had to be the first. Someone had to take a risk. And someone, in taking that risk, most likely didn't make everyone happy. We honor people now. But while they were alive, it may have been a bit challenging. Now, we know all of our ideas begin in our mind. And at times, our leadership decisions are benign. They're simple decisions to make. Whether to copy a memo, whether to send an email, whether to decide on the color of a cell of a spreadsheet, those are benign situations. But at a time, certain times in our leadership, we need to take a stand for something that is larger than ourselves. And when we take that stand, we are not always going to be honored and celebrated. In fact, we're going to make people upset. By the time I get to Arizona. Welcome to the Stephen Thompson Experience. My name is Stephen Thompson, and this is my experience. I'm a dad, husband, man of faith, driven by curiosity and making efforts to be empathetic and compassionate. I'm here today to have a conversation with you 
about the past, the present, and the future with the hope that all of us will leave today ready to the listen, ready to listen to our hearts and bring forth our contributions that we wish to make at a local, a national, and a global level. Today, I am continuing to look at the music of Public Enemy and the leadership lessons we can learn from it. By the time I get to Arizona, was on the Public Enemy album, Apocalypse 91, The Empire Strikes Black. The song deals with former Arizona Governor Evan Meacham, who faced criticism during his time in office after he refused to recognize Martin Luther King's birthday as a national holiday. And John McCain was an Arizona senator at the time, and in 1983, he opposed the creation of a federal holiday to honor King. He later admitted this was a mistake, and in 1990, he supported the holiday. Now, when this song was released in 1991, Arizona and New Hampshire were the only states that did not recognize MLK's holiday. The music video stirred a ton of controversy, and at the end, it depicts the group assassinating the governor with a car bomb. The song and the video are what people said public enemy is at their most militant, implying that they would even use force to advance their agenda. And Chuck D discussed this album, and he discussed some of the, the directions that they were going in. They recorded this album with producer Gary G. Wiz for their album, Apocalypse 91, The Empire Strikes Back. And Public Enemy was looking for a new direction, and current events and beats all came together they had by the time I get to Arizona. And the video had a lot of rhetoric in it. They recreated a 60s-era vision of civil rights, protesters being beaten and Dr. King being humiliated, and then it ended in Chuck D detonating a car bomb, as I said before, assassinating Meacham. Now, for this depiction of blowing up the governor, Public Enemy was reviled throughout the mainstream media. Some examples were they were scrutinized on an episode of Nightline, and uh, columnist K Clarence Page, the Chicago Tribune, said that the video was the exact opposite of the message that Martin Luther King died for. But Chuck's message spread. The NFL pulled the 1993 Super Bowl from Tempe, Arizona, and thousands of conventions and tourists pulled their business from Arizona as well. It was estimated that the state lost $350 million in revenue before voters reconsidered the, refs, the referendum and in 1993, they voted to reinstate the holiday. Political activism in music. In the album, on the song, Chuck D has a lyric where he says, neither the elephant or the jackass represent me. And he was talking about the symbols of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. The Republican Party being the elephant, the Democratic Party being the donkey. Thomas Nast was born in 1840 in Germany. And he was an American cartoonist. 
and he came to New York at the age of six, and he studied at the National Academy of Design, and at 15, he became a draftsman for Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper. Then at 18, he went to work for Harper's Weekly. In 1860, he went to England for the New York Illustrated News, and in the same year, he went to Italy to cover Giuseppe Garbaldi's revolt for American publications. And at the time, Nast drew political cartoons. In 1854, the Republican Party was formed, and six years later, Abraham Lincoln became its first member elected to the White House. Now, there was an image of an elephant that was featured as a Republican symbol and at least one political cartoon, and a newspaper illustration during the Civil War that showed an elephant. And it was an expression used by soldiers experiencing combat. But the pachyderm elephant didn't start to be seen as a GOP symbol until Thomas Nast, who was considered the father of the American political cartoon, used it in an 1874 Harper's Weekly cartoon, and he called this cartoon Third Term Panic. And he was mocking Ulysses Grant, who was rumored to be running for a third term to be president. And he portrayed various special interest groups as animals, and he included one, an elephant, and he labeled that the Republican vote which was shown standing at the edge of a pit. And Nast used the elephant to represent Republicans in additional cartoons during the 1870s, and by 1880, other cartoonists were using the creature to symbolize the party. And there we have the elephant. Now, the Democratic Party, the donkey, can be traced back to 1828, presidential campaign with Andrew Jackson. Now, during his race, opponents called Jackson a jackass. Now, Jackson didn't reject this label. He was a war hero from the War of 1812. And then he went and served in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate. And he was amused by this. He laughed at it. And he included an image of the animal on his campaign posters. And Jackson went on to defeat John Quincy Adams and became America's first Democratic president. Move back to the 1870s. And that's when Thomas Nast began to draw pictures of the donkey as a symbol for the entire Democratic Party. And now we have the donkey and we have the elephant. Now, Nast also was opposed to slavery. And he drew many pictures supporting the Union cause and opposing slavery in his Harper Weekly cartoons, taking a stand. There was a picture that he drew, and it was called, This is a White Man's Government. On that picture showed three Caucasians individuals standing on top of a former slave. 
and he was talking about being upset with the way African Americans were treated and the evils of slavery. At the time, he was drawing these political cartoons. He drew one called After, After the Battle and Emancipation. And he was showing the benefits of abolition and the evils of slavery. And these cartoons that he drew, though hated in the South and hated by many people, Abraham Lincoln called them his best recruiting sergeant. Someone who spoke out against the evils of slavery. But as time went on, and we had the end of slavery, and then we had Reconstruction, Nass continued to speak out and draw cartoons that were showing the problems with the Reconstruction government. And Nass started to disagree with the editors of Harper's Weekly, and he was getting more and more disagreeing with them. In 1886, he lost his job. Then he lost all of his savings when a brokerage house, house failed in 1884 and he became destitute. So he took a stand. And Abraham Lincoln called him a great recruiting sergeant. But his stand he took also cost him his job, his livelihood. And we look at this. We wonder. You see, you take stands that are, are, are correct and that they are right, but not everybody is happy with you. That leads us back to our brains. An interesting study I read. Your brain on politics, the cognitive neuroscience of liberals and conservatives. And this was a neuroscience study that was done to try to see if there were evidence in our brain structure that sort of correlates with our political affiliation. And, this, and the study started to look at this. And in the study, there were many of them, a few of them, and it showed one showed that liberals tend to have a larger and a more active anterior cingulate cortex, or ACC, and your ACC is useful in detecting, judging useful in detecting and judging conflict and error. And conservatives are more likely to have an enlarged amygdala, and the amygdala is where the development and storage of memory takes place. Now, more than one study, the author says, show these same results. And that's why the author said they found it worth looking at. Our brains and our political affiliations of how we think and how we draw conclusions. So, two studies. One called the Neurocognitive Correlates of Liberalism and Conservatism was done in 2007. There was another study, political orientations are correlated with brain structure in young adults. And they found similar results when they compared the neuroanatomy of liberal 
and the neuroanatomy of conservatives. Interesting. What do we do with that? Well, Chuck said this, fitting for a king. I'm waiting for the time when I can get to Arizona because my money is spent on the goddamn rent. Neither party is mine, not the jackass or the elephant. So where do you stand when no one stands for you? In fact, where is your mind? Now, the study seems to say that a liberal's brain is one way and a conservative's brain is another way. But isn't that in the context of American politics? What if you are from China and you're not exposed to the same American political system as we are? It would be kind of ridiculous to ask a person from China or a person from Nicaragua or a person from Africa or a person from Venezuela or a person from Bolivia or Belize or Brazil or Norway or Finland or Iceland if they had the same brain makeup as an American. So when we do studies, who are we doing them for? Are we doing them to support a particular point of view that we have, a small point of view, or are we embracing a larger audience? And that's a question that you have to decide. But again, back to this question. Where do you stand when no one stands for you? And in fact, can you identify when someone is standing for something? And how do you treat them? How do you evaluate it? When you see a person clearly trying to stand up for something that is wrong, one, can you even identify when somebody is doing something that is incorrect, that is wrong, or, or how would you evaluate that? And when we, we go back and we look at our amygdala, and we look at our prefrontal cortex, and we look at our brain makeups and our structures of our brains and of our minds, and we look at some situations. For example, when we see a leader make fun of a woman who has been sexually assaulted, can we call that act alone good leadership? When a leader Call someone evil. Is it one that leader's responsibility to produce evidence of the evil? And number two, isn't it the leader's responsibility to get rid of evil? So what happens? What happens when you have a leader who displays characteristics that are not worthy of leadership? Or is there a way to break a tie? Or do we all go into our corners and defend our opinions? Where do we stand? Where is that person who stands in the middle trying to be a servant, trying to see the shared and collective humanity that we all have? What do you do? You have to adjudicate as a leader between right and wrong, and you have to, as a servant, serve those who come to you. If you are a doctor and, and there is a patient who 
has a heart attack in front of you, you're obligated to help that person who's having a heart attack because your heart doesn't discern your political affiliation. And I hope that we would be able to engage and help that person who is having a heart attack. So when we look at our leadership and as we wrestle with these issues, we have to decide when we're going to take a stand. But what are the consequences of our decisions? Can we evaluate the consequences of our decision and move forward from that place? Thinking ahead, if I take this stand, what will happen? Now, if the stand is I'm going to get made fun of, is that a reason to stop? If I'm going to get made fun of, but, but maybe people can be better. Maybe I can provide hope for someone. If I'm getting made fun of, maybe that means hope for someone else. Then maybe it's worth me getting made fun of. Maybe it's worth me being marginalized. But if I am in a position as a leader where I am making leadership decisions that maybe lead to me getting made fun of and somebody getting hurt, what is the right decision? What is the right decision? When someone has been in pain, and I increased their pain by my leadership decisions, did I do the right thing as a leader? Can I make another choice? Can I make another choice? Can I make another choice even in a difficult situation that may in fact hurt someone but not shame them, but not dehumanize them. Show them a path forward instead of a path backwards. For example, let's say you are in a situation where you have to end someone's employment. Can you build them up on the way out the door? Can you show them a path forward? Can you say, well, maybe you're not a fit here. Maybe there's not, not enough slots. But, but in the larger realm of the world and of the field, here is what I see you can do. And maybe you can go back and get more schooling. And maybe you can go and read some books. And here's some resources. And here's somebody to contact. And here's somebody to call. And give them hope. Or... Do you just simply say, get out the door, collect your unemployment, here's your COBRA, bye, good luck. I guess you could do that, but is that inspirational? Is that transformative? Is that what leadership means? Build people up all the time. I think that's what leadership is in any situation, whether good or bad. Leave someone in a good place because you've got to remember that there are people in front of you. And I think that people matter more than a principal does. Thank you for listening to the Stephen Thompson Experience. Today is your day, and this moment is your moment to reflect and be aware. Put your feet on the ground and feel what is under you. And look up at the sky and say thank you. Look forward at your surroundings and be aware of all that you have. Now move forward from that space. Go out today. Create 
heal, contribute, laugh, and love. We are all here together.